Uh, this is going to be kind of a sermon on prayer. Not really, but kind of. All right. So we'll, we'll talk about how that is. Uh, this is a series that we'll be going through until uh, about Labor Day in September on what it means to live, live a life of spiritual renewal. Uh, we begin next Sunday, a week from today, for a whole month. We'll be talking about Sabbath keeping. If that sounds dreadful or something unusual to hear, what means Sabbath keeping? I'm telling you, it's going to have the potential to alter your life. I mean that. A few of you are nodding your heads because you know what I'm talking about. So just stay tuned. I guarantee you it's going to be something different and you'll be uh, really surprised by what the Bible teaches about rest. So anyway, but today we're talking about prayer and what it means to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's a story I'm going to tell that's going to kind of give us um, kind of what the sermon really ultimately is about. And it's a Bible story from the book of Numbers, uh, a story of Moses. In the book of Numbers, if you know the story, maybe you're new to the faith, and you're still learning these stories, but um, Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. God, through miraculous uh, doings, brought his people, Israel, out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they were to go to the promised land. Now, in the wilderness, this is dry, arid places. There's no food. There's no water. God was miraculously providing these things for them, but they complained. They said, oh, back in slavery, they gave us food. And this dry land, where's our water? Where's our food? How has God, God brought us here to kill us? Like, this is the complaints they were bringing before Moses. So at this particular time, they came to him begging for water, saying, we're all going to die of thirst. We need water in this dry place. So the Lord, um, in Numbers 6 through 19, or 6 through 9, uh, God's gathered Moses and his brother Aaron to him. He said, all right, go before Israel, go to the rock over there, and I want you to speak to the rock, and water is going to come out. I want you to speak to the rock, and water is going to come out. Now, if, um, I don't know if you've ever tried to talk to a rock to make it do anything, um, that's power that's not going to be for Moses, obviously. The Lord is going to show them, I am the one who will come through. Kind of thus says the Lord moment, okay? But let's see what Moses decides to do instead. Beginning of verse 10, Numbers 20, verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Who? Who's going to bring water forth? Moses and Aaron. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. Moses and his brother Aaron, they, they gathered Israel, and they said, Shall we bring forth water from Yahweh's rock? Is there a red flag anywhere? Was it Moses that was going to do this? No. And what did he say? To speak. And what did Moses do? He hits. Now, if you saw somebody hit a rock with a staff and water came out, you'd be like, whoa, Moses, this is crazy what Moses just, Moses just did. But it's interesting. He didn't hit the staff, he didn't hit the rock once because you can think of the scene. He hits the rock once, nothing happens. This is Moses' chance to maybe speak and do what he was asked to do instead of trying to bring glory to himself. But what does he do? He goes for it yet again. God in his grace still gives water to the assembly 
But verse 12 in chapter 20, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, it's interesting, you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. He missed the blessings of God because he didn't believe in God. His faith was not in God that brought about his active obedience that would make God be the center of attention, but rather Moses wanted to essentially do a power play. And his frustration trying to lead this people, he wanted to do a power play and say, look at me, guys, I'm gonna bring water from this rock. And God said, no, that's not how this works, Moses. Now you're not going to get my blessing of the promised land. We're about to see this story in play, in action, in one of these letters of Paul. It's really a perfect display of the continual struggle and temptation we, as Jesus followers, and as the church, from generation to generation, all over the world, this is one of those perennial struggles of just being a human being that we are faced, right? Even though prayer is not mentioned in this passage, I want to just talk about prayer often and what it means to be a praying church, because prayer in all of its multifaceted ways for us as a church and as Jesus followers will be the way in which we are training ourselves, like the school of training here, and the continual difficult lesson that Jesus and Jesus alone is our true hope for all things in this life, that the good news of his kingdom, that he does desire to powerfully bring about in us and through us and in this church. Um, But we must learn, if we are to tap into this, to set ourselves aside. So we may decrease as John the Baptist said, and he must increase. That is the faith that leads to humble obedience before God, the faith Moses didn't have, and the faith Paul calls the church in Corinth to have. And so I want to dive into this in Second Corinthians, the second letter to this church in Corinth, this ancient Greek city, um, this early church here, beginning in chapter four, let's dive in. This is a word of the Lord. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secrets and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So this ministry, as we begin here, Paul speaks of, it's the ministry of the new covenant. This is the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the good news, that Jesus is king and his kingdom is still breaking into this world. And Paul is a passionate minister of that kingdom. So he renounces or refuses to minister in what he calls secret or shameful ways or with deception or by even distorting the word of God. To this church, he says, we want to set forth the truth plainly. And our communicating the truth plainly is the manner in which we want to commend ourselves. We want to be known as people who communicate the word of truth plainly. But even as they did communicate it, in that time, there was these powerful other speakers and leaders who kind of came in when Paul had left. 
And um, these are great speakers, as far as we can tell. They were known for being very charismatic and very powerful presence in the room. And, um, and they had apparently been bringing some accusations of, of Paul's me- uh, message that he originally taught this church. They criticized it to some extent. And so Paul's kind of throughout the letters addressing this teaching of these other leaders and kind of saying, remember what I taught you. Remember the plain truth of the gospel that we are ministers of. And apparently one of the criticisms was that maybe his gospel um, didn't make any sense or it wasn't true. And so Paul addresses that in the next um, part here. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Last week we talked about this, how you could read the Bible a thousand times and then the thousand and first time, suddenly your heart just awakens to the truth of his message. And the Holy Spirit kind of just brought the light into your heart that says, God is real. Jesus loved you. He really died for you. And you say, yes, I want to be a Christian. I want to give all of myself to Jesus. I want to turn from my own sin and embrace him wholeheartedly. Like that can happen even though you read the Bible a thousand times. But the thousand, the first time, suddenly you're illuminated. Why? Because there's a work of God that takes place that unveils the message to be true. Maybe you're here for the 50,000th time in this church, or you're you know, still early, kind of a member here joining us, and like you're curious about this whole Jesus thing. Even if you're hearing, you're, you're curious. It shows that God is at work in your life, because truthfully, you shouldn't be curious about Christianity unless God is at work in your life. Because there is a other power in this world that wants to veil the gospel. His name is Satan. There's demonic forces. They're very real. And he wants to veil the hearts of people to not know Jesus Christ and not find salvation in him and be stuck and enslaved to their sin. And so the God of this world veils people to the gospel, but only Jesus Christ unveils. He says this, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of God, who is in the image of God. So um, as we know that Jesus is the one who unveils this, okay, Paul is basically saying this, like, I'm not the one who unveils this church. This is his indirect message here, if you see what he's saying. Um, Paul, you know, if, if Paul's criticism against him was that his message wasn't true, it didn't make any sense or whatever, or people, you need to remove, you know, walk away from that and embrace this other message that was being taught. Um, was the answer for Paul to, you know, go to take some more speaking classes. Yeah, maybe I just need to be a better speaker. Or maybe he needs to go to seminary and Bible school for the next 20 years in order to just learn the right stuff enough in order to then go back and be effective as a preacher. No, he's not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there is a work of God here that only Jesus can do. And this is why my ministry is only about Jesus because that's his work. If there's any hope, it's not in Paul or in anything else, it's in Jesus Christ. And so he begins this, he continues this in verse five. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. We do not preach how awesome I am or how awesome Paul is, but rather we preach how awesome Jesus is. And how does Paul identify himself? I'll just read through this. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in, in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ. Paul says we're only servants. He uses the word doulos. Really, that's a word that means slave. He says, we're your slaves for the sake of Christ. That's how are you to think of me. This is what Paul was saying. You to think of me as just a servant among you, laboring among you for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because it's not Paul, as we said, and his abilities that can unveil the gospel to people. It is God who spoke light into darkness. You ever sit in a dark room and said light and see what happens? It doesn't work, right? <laughs> the God who spoke light into darkness is the one who speaks into our hearts to turn us toward the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is why it's all about Jesus. Now, as, as I said, I want to kind of talk about prayer indirectly here because prayer is that direct channel where we talk and communicate with God and that keeps our eyes on the face of Jesus Christ because there's only God who can shine light into our hearts. Now, if that is true, if this is a work that only God can do, but he can do it through you and I, it, must, it means that we must learn as a church and as followers of Jesus, if we are able to find a life of spiritual renewal, that we must be a church that if we want to see continuous renewal, that we must have our eyes fixated on Jesus Christ and Jesus alone and resist to be fixated on anything else that may distract us, right? Not things like church buildings, Right? Sometimes I look at our steeple and I just hope it doesn't draw too much attention because it's huge. I don't want to draw attention to be, be known as that church on the corner because of the beautiful building that we are. I want to be known by our love for one another. I want to be known as the people who talk about Jesus and embody Jesus. We must resist any kind of outward symbols that may distract us as being known by this or being known by that. No, we need to be known as the church that looks at Jesus, his face. That's what, that's what Paul said. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You don't see it in my face. You don't see it in this ministries over here, this over there. It's the face of Jesus Christ that drives us continually over and over again. And that is the work of God that can then, uh, or the spirit of God then can move in such a church. We will be allowing the spirit of God to move. It's like we're, we're moving any potential lids. To, I mean, it's so easy to want to put lids on God's work in our life by becoming distracted about something else. It keeps that lid off and allow the spirit of God to work and bring about miracles in our midst. It gives space for the spirit of God to work in and among us. And you better believe that if we keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ, the spirit of God will say, yes, this is what I want to do. This is why I was given to this world, to shine all light on Jesus Christ. You guys tracking with me? You awake this morning? I know it's a rainy day outside. You guys here? You good? All right. That is the kind of church that will experience continual spiritual renewal. That's the kind of person that will experience continual renewal. But he has more to say. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure, the very light of the gospel from God within us, whom he, and within us, physically, like our bodies. And he refers to our bodies here as jars of clay. Now, we don't really have a lot of clay jars today. Uh, they were really abundant in Paul's day. 
I think glass is a good um, you know, equivalent. We probably have some glass jar in our home. Um, when we have a glass jar in our home, it, it has a very temporary life in our house. Uh, for some reason, we keep buying spray bottles for cleaning or whatever, you know, um, glass ones. I don't know why we keep buying them. We just bought the third round of them. I don't know why. Because you know what happened again for the, I don't know, third time, fourth, whatever. The glass bottle was on the high top table in our sunroom. There's hard tile on the floor. I didn't know it was there. I don't know how I got there. One of our kids was playing a board game and I hear an explosion. Glass is everywhere, mixed with water. Cleaning up glass and water, it's a pain in the butt. It's so hard to do. But it's happening, you know, we bought plastic bottles. It took us, you know, $30 of glass bottles to learn that lesson. With five little boys in a house, everything seems to have a shelf life. But glass is fragile. Glass is fragile. And that's what Paul is pointing towards. He's pointing towards the weakness of his body and the power that's within him. Okay? Um, I want you to pay attention to what he does. Our bodies are weak and our bodies break easily. We know this. And our bodily weakness, Paul is going to talk about as if almost by God's design here, he wants us to reorient ourselves towards our own weaknesses as if they have a purpose. Weakness has a purpose in us. And the purpose is to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That's why he gave us jars of clay and treasures inside of jars of clay. Now, this is what he has to say. We are hard-pressed, talking about himself. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, this is coming from a man who was being uh, persecuted deeply for talking about Jesus. Thrown in jail. He he has a whole rap sheet of all the things later in this book that he went through. Getting beat, you know, uh, being shipwrecked and and starving almost. And just all these things that he went through just to spread the gospel. Just to spread the good news of Jesus. He said, we're hard pressed on every side, but even though we're hard pressed, we're not crushed. He says, we're perplexed. Anybody been perplexed about the work of God in your life? I was just talking to somebody before the service, like, Sometimes God's work in our life and what he allows to happen, it's just really confusing and we're perplexed, just like Paul is. But because of the treasure inside of us, we're not in despair. In our weakness, we're not in despair. He hits the ground, he's struck down, but he's not destroyed. And then as Paul almost cast his eyes to the cross in verse 10, this is what he says. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Just a little side note, we Westerners don't have a good, this is for a sermon series for a different day. I'm not gonna go on a rabbit trail too much here, but in the West for centuries, we've, we've kind of made Christianity be something that's either really you know, intellectual, like read a lot of the books if you wanna get closer to Jesus, or really emotional, you know, have a good emotional experience to know Jesus. We haven't really spent a lot of time talking about our bodies in relationship to Jesus. The Eastern church actually has a lot to say about this and so does the Bible, but we don't talk about this often and Paul's addressing physically and also emotionally and also in our thought life, this whole connected point of our, all the entirety of ourselves and how we are to follow Jesus and understand that's just an important thing. We'll talk about that some other day, but your body matters because your body can be a vehicle 
for the glory of God and for the revelation of the gospel, as Paul just said. The life of Jesus may be revealed in your own body that when you're suffering and you still say, blessed be the name of the Lord, through your suffering, the glory of the gospel is being revealed. You guys tracking with that? This is very important. Verse 11, for we who are alive are always being given over the death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So in his sufferings, Paul says, I am carrying around the death of Jesus, only in order that through his weaknesses, the power of God, the life of the resurrection may be revealed. That's why he says death is at work in us, but life is at work in you, because it's all for the churches in which Paul suffers. So in his weaknesses, the gospel is revealed. You could even say that in some way, I'm trying to work on the, the, word, the verbiage of this, that weakness is somewhat required if the power of God is to be made manifest in us. That's what Moses didn't understand. That's what he lost track of, right? He didn't need to look strong in front of his people to be a good leader, because it wasn't about him, it was about God, but he wanted to look like a strong person in front of them, so he struck the rock rather than speaking to it. But consider Jesus, the man who was God himself in the flesh. I mean, the God of the universe in flesh. What path did he choose for salvation? Was it a pathway that made him look great and wonderful and strong and powerful? No, it was a pathway that led him to a bloody, awful death as he was nailed to pieces of wood and publicly stripped naked on the town square to suffer and to die. If you want to talk about weakness... Look at the path that Jesus chose. That's what Paul is trying to cast our eyes on. Because through that, what happened on the third day? The power of God was revealed. And we realize the strength of the grace of God is found on the cross. The strength that the God of all things humbled himself that much. There's no other message of power anywhere else in this world that can save souls. And so through weakness, God's power was revealed. And in Paul's case, he says that is happening now. His weakness, his suffering was revealing the gospel. But right now in our nation, okay, for you and I in America, right now in 2023 at least, we have to literally think about this as a church. Because I think we have to kind of intentionally choose weakness in a way if we are to be an adequate vessel for the power of the gospel to be on display in our life. I want to spend a few minutes kind of talking about that because that may sound like a strange thing to say. It means things like, as Paul referred to himself earlier, um, as a servant, as a slave of people for the sake of Jesus Christ. So it means that, you know, even as he had every right to brag about his status or whatever, he said, I want to be known as a servant. And so as Christians, we need to be also following his example and more or less the example of Christ, much more importantly, who became a servant. So we need to become known as servants, to do the lowly work. Do we as a church, local and national in America, we need to be known as being the weak ones who serve. Jesus never used raw power to achieve our salvation, right? I mean, one of my favorite uh, passages, I love this. It's, it's, just, it's just such a Jesus move and it's just the best. Before he was crucified, he was uh, flogged. And the flogging, some of you know this, it was a device invented by the Romans that had nine metal hooks that just ripped the body apart. 
And so Jesus was flogged with these hooks before he was even crucified. Some people didn't even survive the flogging. And there's a time in the Gospel of John when he's standing before Pilate, and this is after he was flogged. You can imagine him just barely able to stand up, just a bloodied mess. There's a crowd just right over there yelling, crucify him, like chanting for his death. And there's the one in charge, Pilate, who pulls Jesus aside in one of the conversational moments they have. And he asks Jesus, where are you from? Where were you born? And Jesus is silent. He says nothing. And Paul says, do you know, or sorry, Pilate says, do you know I have the power to crucify you or release you? Listen to what Jesus says. Remember, he's a bloodied mess. He probably can barely able to be to stand up. Okay. Now, would you feel insecure at that moment if you were Jesus? He was already wearing his crown of thorns and a robe of mockery on, standing before a crowd, chanting for your death. That's not a very strong moment where you're like, oh man, like this is this is you know I feel great. Like this is a very weak moment. But listen to Jesus' words. Jesus answered him to the one who said, "I have the power to crucify you. Let you go." What does Jesus say? You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. In other words, this weak man with a huge crowd chanting for his murder looked Pilate in the eyes and said, my father and I, we're running this show, man. You don't have power here. It's just, it's almost funny in a way. Like Jesus is completely in control of this situation. (laughs) Doesn't look like it. He's in complete control doesn't care how he looks before the crowd. And he says, Pilate, you don't have authority here. You don't even know what's going on, do you? That's what he tells him. Beware, friends, of anyone who identifies as a follower of Jesus who wants to use power to bring about the kingdom of God. Earthly powers, earthly power structures, it's not the way of Christ. This is, that is not the way of Christ. The way of weakness just may be the most un-American message ever I'm serious. So there's a fascinating study from the Harvard Medical School that came out recently by a guy named, guy named Ian Corbin. He was speaking of people who suffered, suffered from, from strokes who actually had physical effects that, you know, parts of their body weren't working anymore. Their face wasn't quite working anymore. And he said, what commonly happens, whether it's strokes or other things that bring about a permanent physical disability, he, he says, um, they begin calling this uh, 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 the result in most people post-stroke isolation. He observes that far too many stroke patients who had the physical effects, they consigned themselves to a more private, solitary life in the wake of a stroke, not out of practical inability, but out of shame. Listen, this shame, this is from him, this shame is an old American disease whose current day symptoms, including an epidemic of loneliness and rising deaths of despair are becoming impossible to ignore. He continues, Um, Post-stroke isolation is one more symptom badly compounding the damage done by the stroke itself. Studies show that the stroke patient's networks tend to contract in the wake of a stroke. Why? The causes are not perfectly clear, but we can say this. This is the most important part. Too often in America, we are ashamed of being weak, of being vulnerable. We are ashamed of being dependent. We tend to hide our shame. We stay away. We isolate ourselves rather than show our weaknesses. Sometimes medication can help um, people in this position to overcome their shame, but Corbin concludes, the better healing will be to teach these patients to teach ourselves that interdependence is nothing to be ashamed of because it's our birthright 
and the source of some of our deepest strength. Fascinating words to find in the Harvard Medical Journal, right? (laughs) What is the source of shame? It's a very normal thing in America to feel. Don't raise your hand. I'm sure all of us in this room at one point in time have felt shame. Something that we've done, something that happened to us. Maybe the shame of the family that is with you when you go places. You know, when you were younger, it's like, oh, my parents, yeah, I'm so ashamed of my family. Like, we've all felt shame to some degree. The source of shame, however, I want you to listen to this. It is a lack, a true lack of belief. In some aspect, at least, a, tr- a lack of understanding of the good news of Jesus. Because we as Americans are trained for whatever reasons to want to appear strong, we want to make people think that we got money in the bank. I mean, uh, just pure confession, my, my Honda with its peeling paint, you know, racing stripes, what I like to call them. Then a couple of times I'm like, I should paint it, you know. It just looks awful, but it runs great. And I've honestly had the Lord tell me, why not keep the racing stripes? Maybe I'll keep you humble, you know, driving a, looking, a beat up looking car. And I think he's right. It works great. I'll drive it until it blows up, right? But there's some of that because I I feel embarrassment because of a car. Like, really? But that's the American thing, is it not? Shame comes when we lose control of who we are in Christ. When we lose a vision, an understanding of who we are in Christ. When we, shame comes when we appear as weak before others because our ego is hurt. Because we think we're something. When Paul said that the treasure in this jar is a clay, uh, but we like to think of us not as clay jars, but as a treasure itself often. <laughs> that's how we act at least. Um, another way I struggle with this, this is, I guess this is like Daniel Confession Day, huh? Um, when I go to people's houses, a lot of your houses, I see nicely painted walls and glass that isn't broken, you know, spray bottles that aren't, in two pieces. Uh, I don't see holes in your wall and dining room chairs that are screwed together in four different ways. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, you come to my house, you might, don't be surprised. You'll see some of that stuff. All right. If you sit down on my dining room chairs, like just make sure it's steady because, you know, my kids love to rock in those things. And um, I don't want to appear as a guy who just sits around and doesn't fix his house up. Right. Actually, the truth is I work really hard to keep it looking decent. But at some part of me just had to be like, you know what, why though? I got five little boys in my house, all right? They're just gonna put holes in the wall. No matter what I do, somebody's foot's gonna go through the wall again. And that's okay, right? Why do I care about being judged by you if you see a hole in my wall? It doesn't matter, right? But that's my own ego that gets attached because I'm, I'm proud of my stuff. I'm proud of my house. I don't wanna appear a certain way. Even though those things truly don't matter. I know I'm not the only one that struggles with these sorts of things, maybe manifested in a different way in your life. The American desire for displays of strength has always been with us. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna get political and make everybody very uncomfortable. Can I do that? He wants to get uncomfortable in the political discussion for like two minutes. All right, everybody's squirming. I see you squirming. Here we go. This is important. Like, I I want the gospel to be home here. So this stuff is important. Our nation, as it becomes more and more secularized and even polarized in these, like, right and left ideologies, you all know what I'm talking about. I want you to mark, I want you to hear my words, okay? Mark my words. 
both right and left, both Democrats and Republicans, in the next election and for the foreseeable future, unless there's some massive like cultural change here, they are going to both continue to resort to displays of power to achieve their desired ends. Because we've lost a moral compass, we've lost all those things, and all that's left to use to gain their chair is power plays. And that is our future here. And what's going to happen is they're going to look at all the Christians as a voting block and somehow try to wrap Jesus up in their power place to convince you that Jesus has his stamp of approval on their own power place. And that's why you should vote for him. They're going to treat you like that. And they're going to bring Jesus to, uh, and describe him in a way that he simply is not. For example, we're going to see people on the right. Well, this already happened publicly place signs of the cross on their own guns as if the weakness of the cross attached to one of the signs of power somehow makes any sense it doesn't we're going to see people on the left resort to revenge and wrath rather than forgiveness to get their way often even in the name of Jesus and social justice with zero vision of reconciliation but only cancellation and revenge we're going to see people on both sides do this and watch both sides develop their own virtue signaling as a way to shake your heads and agree and be righteous and moral in their own ideologies. Friends, don't buy it. Run from it. Resist it. Keep Jesus in focus as the scripture teaches him, not as political parties describe him. You guys tracking with me? All right. 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Republicans and Democrats. I mean, sorry, to Jews and Gentiles. It's true, though. It's true. As a church community, we are to be found willing to be in community with one another, in vulnerability, without judgment, embracing one another in both grace and truth loving our neighbors as ourselves. And when we must speak the truth to one another or speak the truth to our culture in the face of darkness, we speak the truth while washing one another's feet, just as Jesus washed the feet of his own betrayer, Judas. In this weakness will the love, grace, and power of God's kingdom be made manifest. And in such a church will the spirit of God be given freedom to roam and work and empower us and to use us because we will be set aside and Jesus will take the reins. As individuals in our regular lives with others, this really deeply impacts just how we interact day to day in our lives. Um, for example, for those of us that have kids in our home, do you yell at them when they do something wrong? If you're yelling at them to do something wrong, that's just a power play to show who's boss. You're not really getting down into their level and speaking to their heart. All you want them to know is I'm in charge, so stop. You're not really looking at them and saying, why, is, why are you doing this, right? What's wrong with your heart here? Let me speak into your heart because that is the way of Christ. The humility involved in speaking and shepherding a heart versus just another power play. In our marriages and relationships, it's not manipulating or gaslighting in order to get your way. We choose the path of vulnerability and weakness. We seek the highest interest of the others. Philippians 2 said that Jesus did even at the giving up of our own self, just as Jesus did. In other words, we just can't make it about you or me. 
when we're in community here at our own church and we step on one another's feet, whether accidentally, or let's be honest, sometimes we do it intentionally because we're human beings. In grace, we talk to each other, we communicate, we extend grace, we extend forgiveness by the setting aside of our own egos and have Jesus at the center. We run to forgiveness we're quick to speak the truth and quick to extend grace, assuming the best of each other, not speaking of one another behind each other's backs. This is a kind of community life that comes when we take the letter, uh, the words here in 2 Corinthians 4 seriously and honestly. As we close, there's a final section that we're going to read from this chapter 4 is this. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present you with us in his presence. All of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is, not on what is seen, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In summary, what is Paul saying in this passage? By fixing our eyes on Christ... What is unseen, which is the path of faith, we realize that our eternal future in Christ, our inheritance, is ours. And thus, day by day, as our eyes are set on the things that are unseen, the eternal things, we are being renewed here among the temporary things. I believe, therefore, I spoke. That's what Moses did not do, as Paul said, or as God said directly to Moses, you did not believe me. That's why you struck the rock. He did not believe in the power of God. He believed in his own power. He did not speak. He struck the rock. Living in our own strength or power is fixating our eyes on the temporal. There's no renewal that comes from the temporal. People will let you down. Institutions will let you down. Your bodies are going to let you down. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. It will. Your money's going to let you down. Your family's going to let you down one day. Friends will. I mean, it's just the reality of being a temporal, broken world. These things that we live amongst, they're temporal. Don't fix your eyes on them, but rather on what is unseen, which is done by faith, which is the face of Jesus Christ as this passage began. Having our eyes fixed on the unseen, our future eternal weight of glory that surpasses all of these silly games we play on earth. Our inheritance, which is an eternal forever and ever future with Jesus Christ. That is what our eyes are set on. And there we will find eternal strength day by day. And that is why it is said elsewhere, in our weaknesses, who is strong? Jesus is strong. In our weakness, he is strong. As we close, I, like I said, there's been a, I want to have a quiet undercurrent of a conversation of prayer happening. How do we embrace this as a church? I'm going to call the worship team up here. I want to spend a few minutes um, praying. The sum total of the pathway of this thing we're talking about, this, this kind of humility we're talking about today, um, it's never going to come naturally. We're all going to be just for the rest of our life, just fighting for this. And we know this. 
Prayer really is the singular vehicle by which we can enter the training grounds for this kind of way to follow Jesus. It's really the first place we must go to, not once, not twice, but again and again and again. That's why we must be a praying church. We must stay connected on our eyes to Jesus Christ in order that the will of this church as we are a community together, as we seek to know the will of God for us as we take steps forward, that it's going to be in the direction of the face of Jesus Christ and not sidetracked by anything else. That's why we must continue to pray. That's why we wanted to open up this prayer room to just continue to take steps to say, can we please be a praying church to maintain this, to fight for this, to contend for this here at Emmanuel. And as we do so, I guarantee you, God's going to be working in our hearts. And John the Baptist was able to say at the end of his ministry, when Jesus started getting all the attention and John the Baptist, his own followers left him to go follow Jesus. They said, what are you going to do? Everything's shutting down your ministry. Everything's going bad. Like you're losing everybody. What did John the Baptist say? That's all right, because I must decrease and he must increase. That's the spirit that we're going to contend for and prayer is the first place that we go to. A praying church is an egoless church. A praying Christian is an egoless Christian. A praying church is a spirit-empowered, Jesus-only, and love-of-neighbor church. And that is why we seek to pray.